Amen. All right, we're there in Hebrews chapter number 9. And of course, we've been making our way through the book of Hebrews on Wednesday nights, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And if you remember last week, we dealt with the first five verses of Hebrews chapter number 9, and we kind of went deep into this in-depth look of the tabernacle. And tonight what we're going to do, Lord willing, is finish up the rest of the chapter, verses 6 through 28. We'll pick up right where we left off. We will look at verse 1 just for context real quickly. Um, But we, of course, are in this section of the book of Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews, who I believe is the Apostle Paul, is dealing with this idea of the old covenant and the tabernacle. And, of course, we know that the book of Hebrews was written to first century Jews, and it's helping them understand, not just them, but helping us as well to understand the Old Testament, how it correlates to the New Testament, and how we transition from the old into the new. He's been dealing with this. Now, if you're familiar with the writings of Paul, you know that the epistles written by the Apostle Paul are usually written in two sections. You'll have the first section of the book that is usually pretty heavy with theology and doctrine, and then you'll have the end of the book which will be a little lighter, and it's a lot more application for daily living. The book of Hebrews, we find the same thing. We are going to finish chapter 9 tonight, and then we'll have chapter 10, and that'll be the end of kind of the heavy, doctrinal, uh, old covenant, new covenant teaching. As soon as we get into chapter 11, there's going to be a transition in the book of Hebrews, and for the rest of the book, and it's not a lot, but for the rest of the book, though it'll be a very practical, very applicable Uh, for the Christian life, and we'll get into that, of course, when we uh, get there. If you look at verse number 1, the Bible says there in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 1, I just want you to look at verse 1 just for context, because verse 1 tells us what the chapter is about. Hebrews 9.1 says this, Then verily the first covenant, or what we would call the Old Covenant, or the Old Testament, had also. So he's going to tell us what the Old Covenant had. The Old Covenant had two things, according to verse 1. It had ordinances of divine service, And it had a worldly sanctuary. And of course, when the Bible says here worldly, it's not referring to sinful, it's referring to earthly. It had a earthly sanctuary or a uh, worldly sanctuary. And of course, last week we focused on verses 1 through 5, and we looked at that worldly sanctuary, that earthly sanctuary. Remember, we broke it up and looked at the different sections and looked at all the furniture and things that were in it. Tonight, we're going to look at verses 6 through 28, and what we're going to do, and we'll we'll look at this passage under two headings, and I'll give it to you. Uh, I'll let you know what those are so you can write them down in your notes, and of course, I always encourage you to write, take down notes. We're going to look at the constraint of the Old Covenant, according to Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to look at the contrast to the New Covenant in this chapter, and I'll give you several thoughts regarding that. So if you're taking notes and you'd like to write down the headings, uh, we'll start with the first heading, the constraint of the Old Covenant, the constraint of the Old Covenant. And we see that here in verses 6 through 11. Notice there in verse number 6, notice what he says. He says, now when these things, and he's referring to the Old Covenant or the First Covenant, he says, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. Now, the tabernacle is a reference to the, often refers to the entire tent uh, that we looked at last week and studied it in detail. Here, the Bible says that the priests went always into the first tabernacle. When it says the first tabernacle, it is referring to the first section, the first room, that first part of the tabernacle, because we remember the tabernacle is divided into two sections. You have the first big room, and then you have the, which is called the sanctuary, or it's called the holy place, and then you have the second room behind the veil, which is a smaller room, and that's called the holiest of all, or the holy of holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. Here the writer of Hebrews is telling us that the priests went always into the first tabernacle. And what he's saying is that they went in. When it says that they went always, what that means is that they went in on a regular basis or on a daily basis. The priests were always inside of that first room of the tabernacle. Every day they were in there performing sacrifices or changing out the bread or putting oil for the, uh, for the uh, lamps, or doing incense, or whatever. Every day they had work that needed to be done. So the writer of Hebrews is telling us, look, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. Verse 7, but into the second, 
referring to the second room, the Holy of Holies, but into the second went the high priest alone once every year. And of course, we've talked about this already. This is the Day of Atonement, where the, only the high priest and only on the Day of Atonement, one priest once a year was allowed to go into the second or past the veil. Look at verse 7 again. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year. And notice the Bible says, not without blood. So they didn't just go in there just to go in there. They went in there for a specific purpose. They went with blood to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. So the Bible says here that the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered, notice what it says, for himself and for the errors of the people. Of course, the high priest had to go in because the high priest himself was a sinner. He had to go in and make a sacrifice and offer blood for his own sins. Also, we're told the sins of his family. And then he had to make a sacrifice for the sins or the errors of the people. Look at verse 8. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. And what we see here is the first limit or the first constraint. Because what the writer of Hebrews is going to explain to us is that the old covenant, it had some constraints to it. There were some limits to it. There were some things that limited the uh, usefulness of that covenant. And here we see the first limit. And the first limit is this. And I, I wrote it out this way just so that I can remember it. Maybe it'll help you. Maybe it won't. But I wrote it this way. The first limit is this. It kept out. The old covenant kept out. Or if you want to use, you know, complete sentences, you could say it kept people out. The Old Covenant had this veil that said, as the priests came in, the pre keep in mind, the tabernacle was a place where only the priests were allowed to go into. Now, we saw there in Hebrews 9, the priests were in there all the time. They went in there. The priests went always into the first tabernacle. They're coming in and out of the first tabernacle. They're coming in and out of the holy place every day. They've got business there. They've got work to do there. But only the priests could. So the rest of the congregation, the rest of the 11 tribes, as they were uh, uh, encamped around the tabernacle, the tabernacle was a reminder that they were not allowed in. Only the priests were. But even the priests who had the opportunity to come into the holy place, were reminded every day as they came into that tabernacle that they could only go into the first section. And every time they saw that veil, there was a reminder that said, you're not welcome. Only the high priest, and only once a year, and only with a specific sacrifice, could enter into the holy place. And if he went in just on any other day without a sacrifice, he would die. God would kill him. So the old covenant had this idea that it kept people out. The veil kept the priests out and only allowed the high priest in, only the high priest, only once a year. The tabernacle kept everyone else out. And this is the idea. Look at verse 8 again. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that in the old covenant, the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. It kept them out. A limit of the Old Covenant is that it kept out. The covenant kept out. It kept the people out. But then I want you to notice there's a second limit. The first limit is it kept out. It kept the people out. The second limit is it ran out. Or if you'd like to use a complete sentence, you could say it ran out of time. Look at verse 9. We're talking about the limits to the Old Covenant, the constraints. Hebrews 9 and verse 9 says this, which was a figure. And you're going to notice that these words are used in the book of Hebrews are used interchangeably. Figure, uh, uh, shadow. The, it's all saying that it was symbolic. If you think about what a shadow is, what's a shadow? It's a figure. It's, it's the figure that is cast from the, the, what you, the shadow is what you see that is the figure, it's being cast from whatever it is that's casting the shadow. The idea is when we have the figure or the shadow is this, that that is symbolic, but it's not the substance. It's not the thing. 
It's the shadow that the thing casts. It's the figure that the thing casts. When you look at a shadow, you're not looking at the person that is casting the shadow, but you're looking at a figure of that person, which was a figure. And then I want you to notice these words in verse 9. And if you, if you take notes in your Bible or whatever, you might want to uh, underline these words. For the time then present. Today we have people who want to bring us back under the Old Covenant. They want to tell us that we have to keep the Sabbaths, that we have to uh, do keep all of the dietary uh, restrictions of the Old Testament. We have to, uh, you know, you've got the Seventh-day Adventists, you've got Seventh-day Baptists, you've got the Hebrew Roots Movement, you've got the Hebrew Black Israelites or whatever. You've got all these people out there who want to bring us back into the uh, Old Covenant, Old Testament law, and they don't understand that the Bible says here in verse 9 that that Old Covenant was a figure for a time. You say, what time? For the time, then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices. When were the gifts and sacrifices offered? During that time. For the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices, don't miss it, that could not make him that did the service perfect. The sacrifices of the old covenant, the keeping, the washings, the, the holidays or the holy days, the Sabbath day and all those things, that could not make him that did the service perfect. The word perfect here is not talking about like without error, it means complete or whole. It could not make them complete as pertaining to the conscience. Why? Because it wasn't the thing, it was a figure of the thing. Do you understand that? The same reason, and look, we have the same thing today. All of you say, well, I'm not a first century Jew. These things don't apply to me. We've got the exact same thing today where people will say, well, if I get baptized, talking about physically getting baptized, they'll say, that's salvation. And today you literally have people which, which teach baptismal regeneration and they'll say you have to physically be baptized and the waters of baptism will wash away your sins. Well, that's heresy. Right. Right. You say, well, well, isn't baptism in the Bible? Yes, baptism in the Bible. But baptism is a symbol. It is symbolic. It is a shadow or a figure. Of course, when somebody gets baptized and they enter into the water and the water crosses their body, that's a picture of the cross. When they go down into the water, that's a picture of the death. When they come up out of the water, that's a picture of the resurrection. When somebody gets baptized, they are symbolically saying, I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism doesn't save them. That's just a figure. That's the symbol, not the substance. But today people will say, no, no, you need to be baptized to be saved. Or they'll say, you have to take communion. Catholics all over the world today believe that they have to take communion every week because they need to take communion in order to be saved. They don't understand. That's just a symbol. That's not the substance. That's not the thing. It's just the shadow of the thing. It's just something meant to point you to the thing. And here, the writer of Hebrews is telling us, all those things could not make anyone perfect as pertaining to the conscience. They were just symbolic. They were just meant to point us to the true. Look at verse 10. Which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and cardinal ordinances. Don't miss it. Look at it. This is what the anyone who keeps the Sabbath today needs to just read this verse and memorize. Impose on them until the time of Reformation. So the Bible tells us that the meats and the drinks and the divers' washings and the cardinal ordinance, oh, we still need to keep them today. No, no, no. They were imposed on them, don't miss the words, until the time. There was a cutoff time. The problem with the old covenant is that it kept people out. It kept out. And it ran out. It kept people out, and it ran out of time. It was imposed until the time of Reformation. And let me just help our 
Calvinist friends out there, when the Bible refers here to the time of Reformation, it is not referring to the time which, when Martin Luther posted the 95 Thesis or whatever, um, which is what's commonly referred to as a Reformation today. That is not what's being referred to here in Hebrews 9 and verse 10. The time of Reformation here is told to us in verse 11. You say, when is the time of Reformation? Think about the word reform or Reformation. It's when you change things, right? Because people say, oh, you believe in, 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 in the, the old covenant is different than the new covenant. You believe in replacement theology? Amen. Well, wait a minute. What is, what, 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 let's talk about Martin Luther and the 95 Thesis. What were they doing? They were Catholics. By the way, I'm not a reformer. I'm a Baptist. Amen. I've never been part of the Catholic Church, never will be part of the Catholic Church. But what were these reformers? They were Catholics who were coming out, what else were they called? Pro Protestants. They were coming out of the Catholic Church, and they were protesting against the Catholic Church, and they're called reformers because they were trying to change the Catholic Church. To me, I'm not saying they were bad people. I mean, some of them were definitely bad people, but I'm just saying this. Don't try to reform the Catholic Church. Just get away from the Catholic Church. You don't need the Catholic Church. Here the Bible says that there was coming a time of reformation. People say, oh, you believe in replacement theology. No, God believes in replacement theology. He said there was a time when he was going to reform. He was going to change things. When was that time? Verse 11. But Christ being come. When Christ came, that's the time of reformation. That's when things changed. The old covenant changed. It was reformed. It was replaced into the new covenant. Why? Because the old covenant had problems. Now, the fault was not with the covenant. It was with the people. We understand that. We already covered that. But it did have these issues that it was temporary. It was never meant to be forever. It kept out, and it ran out. Now, let's just run a couple of verses real quickly, and then we'll move on to the next major idea in this passage. Go to Colossians chapter 2, if you would. If you go backwards from Hebrews, you go past Philemon, Titus, 2nd and 1st Timothy, 2nd and 1st Thessalonians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, verse 16. By the way, don't let anybody tell you that all Christians came from Catholicism. That's not true. There's always been a remnant of believers. And, and Catholicism has never been the true church. Colossians 2, verse 16. Colossians 2, 16. Let no man therefore... Here's another verse for our friends who want to judge us. Oh, you don't keep the Sabbath? Well, here's, it's funny because the Bible says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drinks or in respect of an holy day like the Sabbath or of the new moons or of the Sabbath days. The Bible says, don't let anybody, don't, don't let anybody judge you because you don't keep the Sabbath. Why? Why, Paul? Why should we not let people judge us for not keeping the Sabbath? Here's why, verse 17, which are a shadow, symbolic, of things to come, but the body is of Christ. And people often will get, they'll get confused or they'll get a bad attitude towards the Bible or something. They're like, well, why did we need a shadow? Look, this is terminology that's even used today. Don't people often talk about, oh, this was a foreshadow. It was a foreshadowing. What does that mean when something's a foreshadow? It means that we didn't know all the details and we didn't know it all, but we kind of could see what was going to come. All of these things, the meat, the drinks, the respect of an holy day, the new moon, the Sabbath day, they were a foreshadow or a shadow. They were symbolic. They were not the substance of things to come. But the bodies of Christ. Go back to Hebrews chapter 9 if you would. Hebrews chapter 9. So we see the constraint of the old covenant. What is it? It kept people out and it ran out. It kept out and it ran out. It kept out and it ran out. The veil said, you're not welcome. Only the high priest and only on a certain day can he come in. The tabernacle said, you're not welcome. The old covenant said, you can only, only certain people at certain times can approach God. The way into the most holy place was not yet made manifest. It kept out. And it also ran out. It ran out of time. Because it was a figure for the time then present. It was until the time of Reformation when Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a great and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. So in verse 11, we find this 
transition. And we see that we go from the constraints of the Old Covenant, and here's the second heading for those of you that are taking notes, we see the contrast to the New Covenant. So now the, reader, the writer of Hebrews is going to explain to us, he's told us, here's the problems with the Old Covenant, here's the constraints. What are the problems? It kept out and it ran out. Then he says, let me show you how the new covenant is better. Because remember, the entire book of Hebrews has a theme. Jesus is better. Everything about Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels, better than the prophets, better than Aaron, better than everything. And here he's going to tell us, here's why the covenant of Christ, the new covenant, is better. He gives us four reasons why it's better. And you might want to jot these down if you'd like to have these for your notes. Number one, why the new covenant is better. First of all, because the tabernacle of Christ is better. Look at it again there in verse number 11. But Christ being come and a high priest of good things to come. Right? Christ being come. That's the day of Reformation. That's the time of Reformation. He is come and high priest of good things to come. Notice what it says. By a greater, that's the theme of Hebrews, right? Better, greater. By a greater and more perfect tabernacle. So the writer of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus also has a tabernacle and his tabernacle is better. It's greater and it's more perfect tabernacle. Notice, not made with hands, meaning no human being made that tabernacle. That is to say, not of this building. And of course, we've already looked at this in other weeks and we've learned that when Moses was given instructions to build a tabernacle, the Bible tells us that God showed him a pattern and God showed him the tabernacle in heaven and he was to pattern the tabernacle on earth to the tabernacle in heaven. The tabernacle on earth was a shadow of the true. And here the writer of Hebrews is telling us, look, you want to know why the new covenant is better than the old covenant? Look, he's talking to all these Judaizers who want to bring us back under the law and says, let me tell you something about the tabernacle. The tabernacle of Christ is a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. What makes the new covenant better? The tabernacle of Christ is better. Then there's a second thing. Notice it there in verse 12. Not only do we see in verse 11 that the tabernacle of Christ is better, but we also see this, that the blood of Christ is better. Look at it in verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. He's comparing it to the old covenant. He says, look, the old covenant, they gave, they sacrificed blood of goats and calves. But the new covenant, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Notice verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, if you remember when we're in the book of Numbers, we, start, we studied in Numbers 19, the sacrifice of the red heifer, how it, it was burnt up in the ashes of the heifer. That's what's being referred to here in Hebrews 9.13. And the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth unto the purifying of the flesh. Here's what he's saying. If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer could sanctify the purifying of, notice the words, the flesh, not the soul, not the heart, not the mind. He said, if, if they could make you ritualistically clean so that you could participate in the religious rituals, Look at verse 14. Remember, what's the theme of Hebrews? Jesus is better. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, here's the difference between the sacrifices of blood, of the blood of bulls and of goats, is that that maybe was good enough for the purifying of the flesh, but the blood of Christ is the only thing that can purge your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. So we see that the blood of Christ is better. Now the blood of Christ is spoken of in verses 12, 13, and 14. Then in verses 15, 16, and 17, he talks about something else, which we'll talk about in a minute. But then he gets back to the blood in 18, verses 18 through 22. So let's just skip for one minute, verses 15 and 17. We'll come back to it and look at verse 18 through 22, just to get this context of the blood. The blood of Christ. He's what he's saying. The tabernacle of Christ is better. The blood of Christ is better. Look at verse 18. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. The way it's worded, what he's saying is the first testament, the first 
covenant was dedicated with blood. It wasn't dedicated without blood. They sacrificed animals and they sanctified. The Bible says that Moses literally sprinkled the people with blood at Mount Sinai when they made entered into a covenant with God. So he says, Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood, verse 19, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took up the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and, notice these words, sprinkled both the book and all the people. Verse 20, saying, this is what Moses said when he did it. This is the blood of the testament. Doesn't that sound like what Jesus said over the New Testament? Except when Moses said it, he was talking about the blood of calves and of goats. When Jesus said it, he was talking about his own blood. This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled, verse 21, with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry. When they ordained, the tab- remember they built the tabernacle? When they ordained it, they took blood and they sprinkled it. You understand what I'm saying? When, he, when they entered into covenant with God's people, they took blood and they sprinkled the people. They sprinkled the book. They sprinkled the law. They sprinkled all those things. In a, in a week or so, we're going to be uh, uh, having an ordination service, you could call it, or whatever, uh, uh, an opening service of our uh, new building over there, our new property. Aren't you glad we're not in the old covenant and I'm not going to take blood and sprinkle it, you know? Everyone that's been painting is going to be like, what are you doing? And I'm like, you guys are going to have to clean that. But that's what they did. It was, it was done with blood. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry. And verse 22, almost all things are by the law purged with blood. What is the words? And without the shedding of blood is no remission. So the old covenant required blood. The new covenant also requires blood. But the new covenant is better. Why? Because the tabernacle of Christ is better and because the blood of Christ is better. I'd like you to run a couple verses just real quickly. Go to Acts if you would. Acts chapter 20. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 20. Let me just say this. Today there's actually a doctrinal attack upon the blood of Christ. There are Protestants and there are Calvinists uh, all over this country who are attacking the blood of Christ. And the, the most notable, the most famous of these heretics that attacked the blood of Christ, of course, is John MacArthur. And John MacArthur for decades, I remember I was a kid in church hearing pastors preach against John MacArthur and his heresy of the blood. But it's not just John MacArthur. John MacArthur is just the most famous person with a platform to say it. But there's lots of so-called preachers out there who attack the blood of Christ. Let me just read to you a, a quote, a couple of quotes from John MacArthur. This is what he said. These are his own words. He said, The only importance the blood of Jesus has is that it showed he died. There is no, this is what John MacArthur said, there is no saving in that blood itself. He said, We cannot say that the very blood of Jesus, his physical blood, is what atones for sin. He said, I said some years ago that I do not believe, this is John MacArthur, that I do not believe that there was something in that blood itself that saves people. He said, look, the blood of Christ, when he died, his blood was shed. He said it fell to the ground and it stayed there. He said that there's no value to the blood. And then John MacArthur has said over the years that the only reason that we as Christians, you know, have this like affinity or this love for the blood of Christ is because it's been romanticized. Because there's all these songs in the hymn book and we sing about the blood of Christ saved through, by the blood of the crucified one and all these songs in the hymn book about the blood of Christ and, and, and you'll say, you know, that's why people like it, that's why people love it, but it, there's no value in the blood. But here's the, here's the thing, is that what the Bible says? What does the Bible say? Because maybe, maybe there's so many songs about the blood is because the Bible emphasizes the blood of Christ. Amen. So he says... The blood of Christ was human blood. That's what he says. Human blood, there's nothing in the blood itself, chemically, that saves us. Nothing in the blood that atones us. He says the only value in the blood of Christ is that it showed that he died. That's what he said. So the question is, what does the Bible say? We'll go to look at Acts 20, verse 28. Notice what the Bible says. Acts 20, 28. And by the way, as Baptists, we should always ask the question, what does the Bible say? 
What does the Bible say? It doesn't matter what a preacher says. And look, it doesn't matter how famous he is. Amen. It doesn't matter how big of a platform he has. It doesn't matter how many millions of dollars John MacArthur makes $20 million a year, is what somebody told me. He's uh, all over the radio, all over TV, selling all sorts of products. Notice what the Bible says, Acts 20, verse 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves. This is the Apostle Paul, by the way. And speaking to elders, pastors, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers and feed the church of God. Don't miss it. Look at it. Which he, what's the context? What's the subject? Which he, God, he says, he says to feed the church of God, which he, God, hath purchased, look at it, with his own blood. It wasn't just human blood that came out of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was divine blood. It was the blood of God. Why? Because Jesus was God. Because Jesus was the God-man, his blood was divine blood. And the Bible says that he purchased us with his own blood. We could look at a lot of verses on this. I'm not going to do that, but let me just show you a few. Go to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, last book in the New Testament, should be fairly easy to find. Revelation chapter 1, look at verse 5. Revelation 1 and verse 5, the Bible says this, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, notice these words, unto him that loved us, and, look at it, washed us from our sins in his own blood. We've been washed in the blood of Christ. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's not somebody romanticizing a hymn. That's taken out of the word of God. Which he hath purchased, his own, uh, purchased us with his own blood, and he has washed us from our sins in his own blood. And you know what's interesting is that I actually heard a Calvinist say this. They said, it's always just interesting to me how, and I've said this to you many times, I'm not going to take the time to go through it, but I always, it always seems to me like, it's just such a joke. The devil always flips things around. And it's just hilarious. You've heard me explain that. It's something I bring up a lot. You know, Jesus said, don't repeat this prayer over and over. And the Catholics are all like, let's take that prayer and repeat it over and over. Right? Uh, the Jehovah's Witness say uh, only 144,000 go to heaven. The Bible literally says 144,000 come down when everybody else is raptured. That's what the Bible says. Then the Jehovah's Witness say, no, no. 100, only 144,000 go up. Everybody else is just the exact opposite. And it's just like, are you crazy? Well, you're not saved. That's the, the real issue. Jesus said, don't repeat this prayer over and over. And the Catholics are like, I have an idea. Let's repeat that prayer over and over. It's like, you're crazy. What's funny, because you know what the Calvinists, they'll say, all of this is symbolic. They'll say, Jesus did not actually take his blood his physical blood, his literal blood up to heaven, up to a mercy seat and sprinkle it. He didn't physically do that. They say that was, this is all symbolic. The Bible doesn't say he physically, literally did that. They're just using that terminology to help us understand salvation. What's funny about that is that that's the exact opposite of what the Bible says. The Bible says that everything on earth was symbolic and that the stuff in heaven is the true. They say, no, no, they did it physically on earth, but all that other stuff, that the, the, the blood of Jesus, that's just symbolic. Nobody actually went anywhere and did anything with the blood of Christ. It's the exact opposite. Look, the tabernacle on earth was a symbol of the true in heaven. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus literally, physically, not only did he die on the cross and he shed his blood for our sins, but three days later, he resurrected. On the cross, he played the role of the lamb, the sacrificial lamb. Three days later, he resurrected from the grave and he played the role of the high priest. And he literally, physically took his blood to heaven, entered into the Holy of Holies in heaven and sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat. That wasn't symbolic. That was literal. The stuff on earth was symbolic of what he would literally actually do in heaven. Let me show it to you. Revelation 11. Just to show you, you're there in Revelation 1. Look at Revelation 11 and verse 19. Revelation 11 verse 19. Revelation 11:19 19 says this, And the temple of God, 
was opened, notice these words, in heaven. Not a temple on earth, a temple in heaven. And there was seen in his temple, look at it, the ark of his testament. What is that? The ark of the covenant. There's an ark, there's literally a temple in heaven. And there's an ark in that the writer of of the book of Revelation here, John, is telling us the temple of God was open in heaven and there was seen in his temple the ark of the testament and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Look, there literally is a tabernacle in heaven with a holy place and a most holy place. And there's the ark of his testimony. There's a mercy seat. And the Lord Jesus Christ literally and physically as a high priest took his blood, his divine blood, and entered into that mercy seat, entered into that holy place and sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat. He literally did it. Because his blood literally purchased us. We were purchased with his own blood, washed from our sins from his own blood in the literal mercy seat in heaven. So we see that the tabernacle of Christ is better. We see that the blood of Christ is better. Go back to Hebrews chapter 9. Let me give you these other ones real quickly. Remember, we skipped verses 15 and 17. Let's just look at those real quickly. And we see this, that the death of Christ is better. Obviously, the shedding of blood is connected to the death of Christ. But it's not just, the blood is just there to show us that he actually died. No, his blood was divine. It was the blood of God. And we're washed in the blood of the Lamb. Hebrews 9 and verse 15, notice this. For this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, the new covenant, that by means, look at these words, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgression that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. What is that saying? Here's what it's saying. Jesus had to die for us to get the promise of salvation. By means of death. Why do you have to die? For the redemption of the transgressions. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. What we deserve as a result of being sinners was death. Not just a physical death, the second death being cast into the lake of fire. So Jesus had to die. He died. He said, I am he that, was, uh, that is living and was dead. He says, and I am alive forevermore. So he died for the transgressions. Look at verse 16. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. The illustration being given here is the illustration of a will. The testament or the covenant, the testament is being illustrated as a will. You've heard this term before, someone's last will and testament. Well, the New Testament, verse 15, for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament. The New Testament is the last will and testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For a testament, think of a will, is a force after men are dead. Here's what he's saying. In the same way that the last will and testament of an individual is not legally binding, there's no authority to it, until the death of the person who has created it, There's no inheritance. There's no benefit. You don't get anything. You can be in somebody's will, and they can say, you're going to get all this stuff. You're going to get my house. You're going to get my car. But none of that is in force, or none of that is in play until that person dies. And in the same way, the New Testament carries with it benefits. You and I have benefits. The biggest one is salvation. But it's not just salvation. There are things, the Bible tells us, that accompany salvation. Benefits that come with salvation. And all those things did not come into play. They did not get their enforcement until the death of the testator. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. So we see that in the same way that the last will and testament is not legally binding until the death of a person who authorizes, so was the benefits, or so are the benefits and the promises of the New Testament, the New Covenant. They required a death. Now what's interesting, because remember, we're talking about the death of Christ is better. So how's the death of Christ better? Here's why it's better. It's because he resurrected. Amen. 
And here's the thing about, and I'm sure I'm going to get emails from people, and I don't care. I don't read them. <laughs> but, I, you know, the thing, here's the thing about the last will and testament is that once they enforce it, do I really know if they actually did it? Do I really know if they executed it properly? I'm dead. Now I know somebody's going to email me, oh, there are laws, whatever. The point is this. I'm dead. I don't know that they actually did what I said. You know, I mean, my will is not going to be a lot. It's going to be like, uh, I leave two pens to this staff person, and um, the other staff person needs to clean my desk. I don't know. You know, there's not much to give, but, but how do I know that they really do what they say they're going to do? I'm already dead. The thing about Jesus is that he died to enforce his last will and testament, and then he resurrected to make sure it was executed properly. And that makes him better than your will and my will. So we see that the tabernacle of Christ is better. We see that the blood of Christ is better. We see that the death of Christ is better. And then lastly, we see that the sacrifice of Christ is better. Look at verse 23. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. See, the, the sacrifices of heaven are better than the sacrifices on earth for Christ is not entered into holy places made with him. Christ did not enter into the temple, the physical temple on earth, which are the figures of the true, right? This is what the Calvinists, they say it's the opposite. They say, no, no, the heaven is the figure of the true on earth. And the Bible says, no, no, no. The stuff on earth is a figure of the true in heaven. But in heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. Don't miss it. He's saying, in the old covenant, remember, only one priest, only the high priest, only once a year could enter in. It was very limited. But here's the thing, though. The high priest went in every year. Only once a year only on a certain day, only a certain priest, but it happened every year. The Day of Atonement was every year. A high priest would enter in every year. The Bible says in verse 25 about Jesus, nor yet that he should offer himself often. He didn't do this every year. As the high priest enters into the holy place every year with the blood of others, for then must he, have, must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. And what he's saying is this, because Jesus played both the role of the sacrifice and the sacrificer, the role of the lamb and the role of the high priest, he said if he would have to do this every year, he would have to die every year. For then must he have often, he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Here's what he's saying. And we often use that verse, Hebrews 9.27, and it's fine how we use it. We use it in context. And he's saying, look, everybody has an appointment. There's an appointed day for you to die. You're, by the way, safety is of the Lord. You say, I, I don't, I, I'm worried about dying. You'll, you'll die when God says you'll die. And, and, and the good part of that is this. You will not die till God says so. And the bad part of, the, of that is this. You will die when God says to. I don't care how much organic food you eat. And I'm not against organic food. I'm just saying, I don't care how healthy you think you are. You know, you have an appointed day. And by the way, it, it's, a, it's a sobering thought for all of us to remember that there's an appointed day. We have an appointment with the God that created us. And as it was appointed unto men once to die, but after this judgment. That's it out of context, which is still in context. But the true context is this, that in the same way that men die once, Jesus only had to die once. Tell that to the Catholics who think he has to, they say communion and his body becomes the physical transubstantiation or whatever. Look at verse 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Amen. So we see that the tabernacle of Christ is better, the blood of Christ is better, the death of Christ is better, the sacrifice of Christ is better. Now let me just real quickly just give you one application. Because all of this has just kind of been real heavy teaching and doctrine and praise the Lord for that. But I got, I've got like five minutes. So let me just give you a real quick application and we'll finish this thing up. Go back to verse number eight. 
Hebrews 9 and verse 8. Notice what it says. The Holy Ghost, this signifying. He said, here's what the Holy Ghost was trying to teach us through the Old Covenant. One of the things that the Holy Ghost was teaching us in the Old Covenant was this, that the Old Covenant kept you out. The Old Covenant kept you at bay. And the Old Covenant kept saying, no, you're not welcome. You cannot come in. No one can just enter into the tabernacle. And even if you have the privilege to enter into the first section of the tabernacle, no one can just enter into the, second, uh, into the Holy of Holies. It kept you out. Now, it ran out, and praise God for that, but it kept us out. The Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. While as the first tabernacle was just standing. When the first tabernacle was still standing, the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. The word manifest means to be made apparent or made seen or made clear. What is this telling us? It's telling us that the new covenant does what the old covenant could not do. The old covenant had a veil that kept us out. The new covenant made a way in. Because the thing about the Holy of Holies is that the Ark of the Covenant, which was what was in the Holy of Holies, represented the presence of God. And the idea was this, that man, mere man, mortal man, sinful man, could not enter into the presence of God. But God, but Jesus made a way. And the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. And God kind of shows this in a very dramatic way. And you, I know you know this, but let's look at it real quickly. Go to Matthew 27, if you would. First book in the New Testament, Matthew 27, look at verse 51. Matthew 27, verse 51. Lots of interesting things happened at the death of Christ. Here's one of those interesting things. Matthew 27, 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain. The word rent means to tear apart. Twain means two. The veil of the temple was rent in twain or it was torn apart in two. What's interesting about that, and I know we looked at this last week, so you're familiar with it, but the purpose of the veil was to keep people out. If you remember, you don't have to turn here. I'll just read this for you. We saw this last week. Unless you want to, of course, you're welcome to. Exodus 26, verse 31, tells us about when they made the, the, the veil, when Moses made the veil for the first tabernacle the, the, uh, on earth. Exodus 26, 31, And thou shalt make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet. That the colors there are referencing different materials. And remember, we talked about this last week, fine twine linen. The word twine means to interlace, to interweave. So it, had, it was made of all these materials, and they were interwoven together. I don't know a lot about, you know, knitting and crocheting and all those things, but I know this, that if you take two pieces of material and you intertwine them, you make them stronger. And here the Bible says that they took these different materials of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen of cunning work with cherubims shall it be made and thou shalt hang it upon four pillars. They have to have four pillars to hang this veil. And here's what I want you to understand. This was a heavy duty veil because we think of a veil and we think like a curtain, but it wasn't just a curtain. It was like a, a very big and very thick curtain. It says that they would hang it on four pillars of shit and wood overlaid with gold with their hooks of gold upon the four sockets of silver and thou shalt hang up the veil under the tatches that thou mayest bring in hither within the veil, the ark of the testimony and the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy place. You have this thick curtain, this thick veil that says you're not welcomed in. And at the death of Christ, the Bible says, Matthew 27, 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain. And I want you to notice this, because you need to understand this. Nothing in the Bible is incidental. Nothing is incidental, nothing is accidental, nothing is coincidental. If something is mentioned, it's mentioned for a reason. I want you to notice the Bible tells us here, not only does it tell us that it was rent, it tells us how it was rent. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain. Notice these words, from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. 
The writer of Matthew, the Holy Spirit of God, feels the need to tell us the veil was rent, but also in which direction it was rent. It was rent from the top to the bottom. Not from the bottom to the top, not from the side to the side, but from the top to the bottom. And it's almost like at the death of Christ, heavenly hands came down and grabbed that veil and rent it in twain from the top to the bottom. And the way was made for us to enter in to the holy place. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, go back to Hebrews if you would, just look at these two verses, we'll be done. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. You've seen the verses, we know, but let's look at it. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because under the old covenant, the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. But under the new covenant, when the testator died and the new testament, the last will and testament of the Lord Jesus Christ came into effect, the veil was rent. And then we were told that we could come in boldly unto the throne of grace. Look at Hebrews 10 and verse 19. This last verse we'll look at. We'll just jump into chapter 10 real quickly. Hebrews 10, 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness, look at it, to enter into the holiest, look at it, having therefore, brethren, boldness, boldness to do what? To do what Israelites for all of the Old Testament did not have the boldness to do, what Levites and Levitical priests did not have the boldness to do. What even a high priest did not have the boldness to do because even the high priest could only go in once a year. But the Bible says that we, brethren, can have the boldness to enter in to the holiest, the holiest of all, the holy place. How? Look at it. By the blood of Jesus. John MacArthur should read that verse. How can we enter in through the blood of Christ? Why? Because the tabernacle of Christ is better, the blood of Christ is better, the death of Christ is better, the sacrifice of Christ is better. Just mark it down. Jesus is better. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do love you. We thank you for these passages of Scripture. Lord, I pray you'd help us to just fall in love with Jesus. Fall in love with the blood of Christ. These are not hymns written by individuals who made too much of the blood of Christ. Christians through the ages have made much of the blood of Christ because the Bible makes much of the blood of Christ. It's the blood of God. It's divine. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that blood lose all their guilty stains. Lord, we love you. We thank you for sending your son to die on the cross. We thank you for the shed blood of Christ that saves us and washes us from our sins. It doesn't just cleanse our flesh, but it cleanses our conscience. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're going to have Brother Moses come up and lead us in a final song. Just want to remind you of a couple of things. First of all, don't forget, if you are a teenager, don't forget